we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and as usual, I'm coming at you from the cabin in the woods, where, as you can imagine, I'm surrounded by leather-bound books, uh, fine snifters of uh, lovely drinks of various different kinds, and, of course, lots and lots of dusty old tapes and VHSs of uh, old episodes and strange stories. Now, I've had a lot of good feedback from some of the recent music-themed episodes that we've done, and being as I've been rummaging around in the archives... I've decided to find a home for some old material that otherwise has nowhere for it particularly to be. It's been hanging out on internet archives for several years now, and I think it's better to have it somewhere where people can hear it. So what we've got in this episode is, I think, maybe literally my favorite piece of podcasting I've ever been involved with, which is a pretty big thing to say, but it's about a fairly, a fairly fun and silly topic, which I think at the moment is something that we can all benefit from. So what we have here is, what I've dusted off, is an episode from January of 2017. So this is before the podcast was the way it is now. You'll hear me introduce it uh, from way back then under a different title. We didn't really have a solid theme or name or anything. We just recorded on various topics if and when uh, we had the chance to do so. But uh, even given that kind of looseness of theme, this was one of my favorite things I've ever done. So this is myself and my brother Donal in Montreal, in in lovely Quebec, uh, back in the day, talking about the band Kiss, because my brother is obsessed with them. And our, I think, as I recall, we both read or reread a set of biographies of all of the four members of the band, and talked through the history of the band via the the viewpoints of the four guys. As I recall, I had to read some of the books, but he didn't because he's read them so many times already. But this is a really, really great piece of recording. And um, Donald knows more about Kiss than anybody humanely should. And uh, they're just, if you don't know anything about them, or if you've just seen pictures of them, um, please do uh, give this a go. They're fascinating characters, even if you don't know anything about the music. I, myself, didn't care much about the music, certainly at the time. And I still managed to uh, to to really get sucked into the stories of the four characters. So if this is a podcast about why people believe weird things, then this is a story about four absolutely deluded personalities who uh, have come to to see the same story of their career in four uh, hilariously different ways. So without much more to say, I'm going to take the old tape, stick it into the slot, and I really do hope that you enjoy it. to Off The Wagon Reviews. This is a very special episode. We are coming to you live from lovely and snowy Montreal and I'm very proud to introduce my brother Donal. Hello! Uh, first time for him being on the show. I uh, actually haven't seen him in a couple of years but it's uh, great for him to be here. 
I'm a representative of the snowy tundra of the great white north here in Canada. We are proud and free and strong and free, maybe. Those are some of the lyrics to the national anthem that I can't remember, but we're a few things of, of that persuasion in these parts. But uh, one thing that Canada does have an awful lot of is hockey, and another is actual kiss fandom. Um, and that's the topic of our discussion today. Yep. And I brought Donald in on this one. I've been actually holding out and waiting. This is a long-awaited episode for us. We've been doing a lot of research on it. And I've, I've planned this because I wanted him on it because kiss means a lot and has always mean, meant a lot to, to him. So I think, Don, if we get started, you want to tell us a little bit about your background with the band kiss? Yeah, so I'm 30 now. And when I was about 13 or... Well, this is sometime between 12 and 13, I think, in about 99, 2000, thereabouts... I saw um, an album cover in a second-hand CD shop, and it was, I would later learn it was the album cover of Psycho Circus by Kiss. <laughs> I was just utterly intrigued by it. I didn't really understand what it was. It was one of those, wait, is it parallelogram? Would that be the right term? You, you know those um, moving covers? What's the term With for that? With the 3D ones. Yeah, semi-3D, so you look at, you sort of take it to one side, and it looks like one image, and you move a little bit. And it was like a sort of a curtain that opened and then revealed four distinct faces. I was sort of scared of it. it. I thought it was going to be some sort of Norwegian black metal thing where it was all growling about Satan and stuff. But I thought to myself, you know, these guys were around in the 70s. I don't think there was an awful lot of growling in those days. So, so you had heard of them, like, you know, I something. Knew, I knew them like the, there was a whistle on the wind that these guys <laughs> were sort of legendary in some capacity or another. And I was intrigued, but I was too scared to just pay up the six pounds, I think it would have been at that time, to buy the CD, I remember. So I went to the music library and I found an album of theirs, which featured a very different type of album cover. It was an old wooden door with a, a sort of effeminate hand oh, on it. Oh, that was the first one? It was the first one. I so I was too scared to get Psycho Circus, but I wanted to dip my toe in the water. Um, and so I went to the music library in Cork City, where we're from, and I took out The Elder, which I'd later find out is basically considered by many people to be Kiss's at very least most perplexing, and in many cases, worst album. I would say unrepresentative of Kiss. Absolutely unrepresentative. The least That's... representative album you could possibly have found. Yeah, so it offers nothing of what would make them de deemed classic in any way for the people that love them. Now, there's a lot of people who are Kiss fans that love that album, a lot of who hate it, but in no way is it representative. Keen is absolutely right, and those are to say that, right? So I think it was just a strange, strange opening into the band for me, but I absolutely ate up the album. So it's a, it's a sort of a strange concept album. It doesn't offer the sort of good time rock and roll. Here are a bunch of characters. Let's just have a laugh. That Kiss sort of really are good at in many ways. I got into it and from that point I sort of like I once I decided I liked that album I went back bought the six pound album from the secondhand shop now that I was sure that they weren't going to be scary Norwegian types and it was just it was great and I loved it it was straightforward rock and roll and I so I had the two kind of pillars I had like a straightforward rock and roll album and I also had this weird sort of pseudo medieval lame half-assed concept album but that I still loved very deeply and instantly I was enthralled at the idea that this was a band with 30 years of history and so I could go and do homework which I love I love the idea of legendary bands that have a long backstory and so I went online in the sort of early days of the internet getting around 99 not early days but early days for us I think and I just researched the hell out of the band and just went about getting the albums um, picking fast and downloading and you name it and I wanted more. It was always this thing where I wanted more, I wanted more. And the history was so rich that there was always more for me to get. Did you? Did this happen at a time when you were already like into rock and roll and you were growing your hair and learning how to play guitar? Or About the same time. So I think I was maybe starting to take music more seriously than just, you know, whatever, you know, our dad put on in the car. 
I was starting to sort of find my own voice in terms of what I liked, but Kiss were one of the bands that really said to me, like, oh, you have to take music more seriously, this is it. And so then I sort of, like, became a rocker. became, as they said in, in our part of the world back in those days, a masher. I can't remember where the quote comes from, but a, a, a line came into my head, which is that someone, I mean, for decades, really, young people have said about Kiss and about, like, albums like Alive, you know, this was the album that changed the length and colour of my hair has come into my head. So maybe it was kind of like that for you. Yeah, I think they're one of the bands now that just, uh, for some reason, they emerge in young boys or young sort of nascent teenagers' lives at 14, 13, whatever, and they just have the same effect on every generation, somehow. So, you know, every every teenager who starts to discover pot immediately gets Dark Side of the Moon. You know, everyone who starts to think like, oh, wow, I wonder what would happen if people took the blues into the progressive realm like immediately you get your Led Zeppelin too you know and just these bands they seem to be evergreen they come back generation after generation and Kiss has that effect it's just something about the presentation with the makeup with the bombast that just retains its power it hits 14 year olds right where it counts and yet I think everything that didn't work for me worked for you the fact that they were larger than life and over the top and because your, your, your love for them was so intense I, I ended up knowing quite a few songs because you not only were listening to them, you were learning to play them and you learned to play like lead along to Ace Freely from the band and sounded like him for years. <laughs> I don't know if you'd still... Yeah, so w- when I sort of started to initially uh, proselytize, if that's the right word, about Kiss, I got a few people sort of like semi-interested and one of our friends, Stev, bought a, a Best Of called Double Platinum that was reissued in the in the 90s. It was actually originally released in 77, I think, and it had 20 tracks on it from the first uh, maybe six Kiss albums, which is really the golden period. So it's like, this was a fantastic just collection of all their sort of really classic 70s stuff. And I just, I remember borrowing that CD off them and just playing along on the guitar with as many tracks as I could, just learning all the riffs. And for me, mu- at a musical level, it was the guitar playing of Ace Frehley that really sucked me in. Everything else, it was... Probably just the fact that I was always a big pro wrestling fan. And yeah, there's a the lot of crossover. Res- the pro wrestling style presentation of the larger than life characters and the, the gimmicks and the and all that, you know, the presentations. It really, I think, that was doing it for me at a visual level. But I did, like, I would defend the music to a certain degree too. Cool. Yeah. So, moving on a little bit, we're just to explain what we did to prepare for this and how we're hoping to structure this. We're going to talk about the history of KISS from the points of view of the four members of the band. Yeah, so thinking again in terms of a a little bit of a parallel to wrestling, right? So for a lot of people, they watch wrestling for a certain amount of time when when they're a kid and then they find out that it's fake and then they just can't ever invest the same emotional meaning in it again. It's just, it's over, right? This is scripted, who cares? For the other type of fan, of which I would be one, incidentally, it's like you sort of just redirect your attention quite considerably to what happens backstage, the political interactions that create the then scripted outcome in the ring. And Kiss is kind of the same thing, because initially you think like, wow, these are big superheroes, and you know, Gene Simmons really is a demon, Paul Stanley really is the ultimate rock and roll frontman, and then you sort of, you know, at one point you see the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, and he's just a tiny little guy <laughs> with, the, with some smoke and mirrors and, and whatnot. And so what you then do, again, if you're the type that I am, and Kean sort of by proxy ended up in this way, it's that you start to get, all right, well, who are these guys and what are the political machinations behind the curtain that determine this? Yeah. And so we're going to look primarily at the personalities involved, how they're four of the four original members. You've got two guitar players, um, bass player and a drummer, and all four sing at various points. 
And these were four very combustible, very odd, very strange characters. And so we're going to look at, again, the sort of political machinations behind the scenes as this band sort of tried to do its own <laughs> weird form of rock. And tried to carry out a very unique mission at the time, which we'll get into. And that's my, po- my take on all this, which was, I really wasn't interested in the music, but I slowly became sucked into the interest in the characters and the people behind it. And, and this is from a time when the internet was pretty new and, and you were looking at these websites that are long gone, you know, where people were, were chronicling the back behind the scenes stories of all this craziness. And I guess I slowly, I slowly got sucked into the orbit. Yeah, something about Kiss that makes people go over the top in, like, with their fandom in ways that I don't think too many other bands do. I mean, there are certain things out there certainly that where, like, people really, really get into them and there's a widespread community out there. And, I, you know, Kiss would be one where it goes to the real extreme. So there's so many Kiss newsletters, websites, even from the earliest days. I think, like, the first Kiss website went up in 1991. It's like Star, the Star Trek fandom from the 70s, isn't it? Yeah, in its own way. And it's been going almost as long, right? You know, it's only like Star Trek, I think, debuted in 66. Kiss debuted in 73. So it's gone almost... And the connection to wrestling is very apt in terms of the presentation and the way the fans react to it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're gonna we're not actually gonna talk very much about the music. So we're gonna talk about the personalities. We're gonna talk about how the politics of those personalities shaped an awful lot of what happened. I just have a quick quote that I wanted to sort of set the table with. And this is from a book called Kiss and Sell: The Making <laughs> of a Supergroup by a guy called C.K. Lent, and he was uh, part of the business team that was sort of managing Kiss's money for much of the '70s and I think almost all of the '80s. And so what he says is the combustible mix of personalities in KISS created an unusual dimension to their appeal, transcending what came across in their records. And, that, and, and I think that quote tells us exactly what we're doing here in, in some ways. That, like, Kean can still be interested to make a podcast about these guys, despite the fact that really he's never going to put on their music of his, <laughs> of his own volition, right? Except so. for maybe Psycho Circus. Except for, except for and, maybe and their, the 90, their 1998 reunion <laughs> record where two of the members didn't even play on it. So that shows and you how their, dedicated Kean is to the And music. their ill-advised 1982 Dungeons & Dragons rip-off uh, attempt to make a highbrow-style uh, concept album that failed. <laughs> I'll just correct you there, 81. 81. My apologies. I haven't read it. I read three books this month, and that's not enough. I read the history of them three times from three different viewpoints. So our mission tonight is to give you the history of KISS from the four different viewpoints because we read their four biographies uh, uh, over the last few weeks and we read a few extra books as well just for bonus. So I read the biographies, the autobiographies of uh, Paul Stanley who sings most of the songs and was kind of the front man and rhythm guitar player. Yeah, on stage front man. Um, probably not the the visual anchor of the band. No, but that he's, would be Gene. But he was the he stood in the middle of the stage. He announced the songs in between, and, and his, he was yeah. His character is the star child. If you if you've seen Casey, he's the guy who wears the makeup with the star on his face. And I also read the biography of Gene Simmons, who is the guy you probably do know. He's the demon with the black and white kind of kabuki mask face sticking his tongue out. And uh, he plays bass, writes and sings some of the songs, and hogs the spotlight a lot. Yeah, oscillates between his trademark Cookie Monster singing voice and a quite sweet um, Paul McCartney impression <laughs> on the softer songs. So which two books did you read, Dom? So I read especially Peter Chris, who's the drummer, a.k.a. the Catman, would be his persona. I read his book and I looked quickly over Ace Fraley's book, which is called No Regrets. 
Um, but you will have a regret if you buy and read it because it's a total waste of time. You have read it before. I've read it before and I just give a quick glance again, but there's very little material in it. So I sort of got Ace's perspective from, from other other materials. Um, so I also read a book called Behind the Mask, which is I recommend higher than any of the individual biographies for a casual person who's interested in this story. And it's, it's a, a take on their history from everyone's point of view, along with all the various other people they worked with, engineers and producers and musicians and stuff. And it's, it's really, really interesting. I also read the, or reread the aforementioned C.K. Lent book, Kiss and Sell. And I also looked at a book called Nothing to Lose, which um, covers the first uh, three years of the band in very, very uh, close detail. And it's, again, features heavily Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley writing, with all, but also with Ken Sharp, who's the same guy who wrote the uh, Behind the Mask, which is the book that Kean just recommended there. Cool. So uh, we've done, we've gone above and beyond the Call of Duty with the research on this one, I feel. Yeah, I didn't really need to do any of it. I knew it all of it anyway, but... <laughs> I feel like I've learned something anyway. Uh, so I think to get started, I think we'll talk about the initial concept of KISS and what their original idea was. Uh, yeah, so I mean, the, the, I think Gene Simmons would put it in this, these terms. They were trying to make an American Beatles that would have four distinct characters, all of which could be sort of latched onto, and that they would take that basic concept and amplify it by adding distinct personas in a comic book kind of way, like a superhero style, over-the-top cartoon characters that could be really immediately understood. And marketed. And market, yeah, <laughs> marketed. He says that they were thinking in terms of marketing and branding early From the on. Beginning, I think I, that's total yeah, BS. I, it sounds, some of the materials suggest that they really that came a lot later and they didn't, knew nothing about business for a long time. But they were they were definitely interested from the earliest possible um, date from uh, in being able to sort of visually codify what the four characters meant um, as personas and how they would move on stage. So they were videoing their rehearsals from even before they had one show, and they were trying to move in different ways. Like how does a demon move? How does the, uh, the definitive rock frontman move? This kind of stuff. Um, Ace Frehley, the spaceman. How does he move, right? He's supposed to be spaced out, right? So he has to stagger around the place. <laughs> he was staggering for other reasons too. <laughs> well, that was the that was the character, right? It fit so well. Um, so yeah, that's the the idea was very much a, a sort of an a, an American Beatles in all the very American, American ways like you can imagine. America of. looked at the Beatles and came up with Kiss. Yeah, that kind of and Gene Simmons pretty much said the Beatles as superheroes. Yeah, it's kind of if, if, if England had a steak, the Americans went for this sort of quadruple cheeseburger. And something I got from the books, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around now, is a lot of the stuff they were doing that seems really simple and basic now was new at the time. Like presenting yourself as a band in this way, going over the top with your presentation, how you looked, having a uniform or a, or a costume. And I know they took from bands that did it before, like Slade and the glam rock that was happening. Yeah, the, the antecedents really were, yeah, glam rock stuff in both the States, Alice Cooper. Like, like New York Dolls, shock rock like Alice Cooper, then you've got the British glam, Bowie was yeah, sort Bowie. of moving towards Ziggy, um, and you also had, yeah, Slade, who were uh, musically a big influence on Paul Stanley, for sure. But they, they just, they went so much further with it, and usually those kind of bands who had a glam element, it was often, you know, you kind of had the typical pub rock drummer and bass player hidden in the background with big sideburns and you know denim jeans and stuff, and then you might have the glamorous sort of androgynous feminine feminine looking um, frontman. Kiss just said like we're going to max this out big time, and they wanted to sort of 
capture what the New York Dolls were doing good, but they felt like they couldn't um, compete. They couldn't compete with them. They weren't going to be able to do the same thing in the same way. So they just decided, right, we'll go so much further. And they, yeah, it's key, like Ian, it's right to say that this was totally off the map, um, despite having very clear and obvious antecedents and precedents that we can see now. But it was way beyond what anyone else was thinking of. Yeah, it's it's just like they claim in the book, and I, I you, you you might take or leave this or believe it or not, but they say things like, you know, bands didn't generally come out on stage and have their name written in lights behind them. And and they were, like, embarrassing all the other bands in their early tours by being more bombastic than they were. Bands didn't have, you know, pyro and stuff exploding, and uh, bands didn't have, you know, groupies walking around giving out T-shirts with the band's name on them. And so they were very organised well, some of them were uh, from an early time. Yeah, well, they had a very um, insightful manager, I think, called Bill O'Coin, who was uh, a television producer by trade, and he r- was very, very much the sort of one who was organizing all of this. I think Gene and Paul, to a large extent, had had a uh, had a willingness to do whatever it took to make it, and yeah. they were they were totally shameless in sort of presenting themselves in this out of the box way. But in terms of managing the presentation in an organized, really efficient way that was cohesive as uh, at a conceptual level, Bill Coin, the manager, and Sean Delaney, who was uh, his um, partner, um, I think they were very much involved in it. You know, again, like I said, they were filming their rehearsals, but they were also filming their shows right from the get-go to see, okay, what are people reacting to? How am I moving? How do I look? All this kind of stuff. So. It was a it was an efficient machine, and they sort of like decided, right? We need someone to do certain types of stage movements. So who's going to do this? So Gene said, "All right, I'll yeah, spit they, fire." They doled out the characters quite deliberately. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of a machine, the phrase four wheel drive" is one that they used a lot. Uh, the idea originally was that we'll have four characters, all easily recognizable, easily marketable, and they'll all have a different trait. And they will all have their own songs that they will write. Everyone, everyone, like in the Beatles, they liked the way each of the Beatles would occasionally sing a song. And they were like, let's do that even more so, so that every fan will have their own favourite. And that way we'll shift, you know, maybe four times as much merchandise. And I think they didn't quite go down far enough this road as they wanted to. Like, late, much later on, they each individually had solo albums that they released in the same year. Same and, day. And the same day. And they had posters and, and stuff. But... Can you imagine, like, they, they should have done a lot more of that. You know, when they had those magazines that got released where they'd have four different versions of the cover and they were hoping that fans would buy one of each. And they didn't ever quite get to do that as much as they wanted to. Probably not, but I think right from, right from the early days, they were very successful in presenting four clearly bounded, clearly uh, conceptually co- uh, presented characters. And so, like we mentioned, Gene Simmons was supposed was a, like a horror movie character, and he was a horror movie nut. Uh, yeah, himself. he loved comics. He loved comics. He loved pulp novels. Yeah, um, and so he presented movies, himself as superheroes as a, as a villain, uh, not a villain, but a horror movie character. And so, if you were into the macabre, if you're into spooky things, or you know, he could just thrill your gorilla, as Alice Cooper would say. Paul Stanley, <laughs> then, as we mentioned, was more like he was sort of like. You know, an American sort of Ziggy Stardust in the sense that he was just like a flamboyant rock star who was supposed to be, you know... Androgynous or... Yeah, the, the, the women love him and the men are envious of him kind of thing. You've got Ace Frehley who's supposed to be a spaceman, supposed to be from another planet, but he's so, you know, spaced out that he barely cares. He's stumbling around <laughs> the stage playing these great solos. And so the stoner sort of set in the crowd, which obviously in the 70s was a big deal. They could sort of go with him. Peter Chris, who, I mean, I've always thought his makeup looks super, super lame. 
By comparison, yeah. By comparison to the others. But a lot of people identify with this Catman persona. Do you believe that he did come up with that himself? And it wasn't yeah, kind he of did. foisted upon him? No, I think he did because he felt... Peter Chris was a sort of... An in, I mean, certainly in his own mind anyway. He was a tough street kid from New York who grew up in, in a rough neighborhood and faced sort of gangs and, and, and this kind of thing. And he felt like he was a cat because he had had multiple lives, right? Like going up to nine lives. And so he'd already survived a few close encounters. And so I think, I mean, whatever that may mean, right? But he sort of, again, was, was down with that character, whether it's stupid or not, or whether the makeup was lame or not. It was certainly lame in the early days. It got refined and looked a bit better as the years went by. But he was down with it and he was invested in it and he presented it co- like, you know, he went whole the whole hog in terms of the presentation and so you know people did latch on to it there are lots of people who especially early Kiss fans like who love Peter like they love Peter and they're so devoted to him um, just like you have Ace fans Gene fans Paul fans whatever so I guess in that way they were successful they were successful I mean the marketing opportunities I think they didn't realise it until later and then yeah they tried to do it probably in ways that were unsuccessful But they had some managers who did that pretty well as well yeah for sure uh, so let's let's talk about the four characters in a bit more depth and get into maybe start getting to the reasons why this didn't always work out quite as they intended. Yeah, uh, so not necessarily all the way from the very very earliest point, but before too long, it emerges sort of Gene and Paul were very hard working types who, like I said earlier on, were utterly shameless in their desire to make it um, in show business as as famous rock stars or whatever, and they were just absolutely dedicated to the grind, dedicated to the graft, and weren't necessarily there for the good times no, no. for their own reason, like for, for its own sake, right? They weren't there just to, to, to be hedonistic. It was the, yeah, but they, they famously didn't drink or do drugs at a time when everybody was. Exactly. So like the, in the rock and roll industry. This is a story where Gene Simmons like ate a pot brownie once and nearly, you know, it nearly killed him. And that was about it. And Paul Stanley liked the occasional glass of red wine. Although I personally think Paul Stanley was hoofing back the coke in the 70s and just <laughs> likes to likes the narrative that he was the straight one alongside Gene. But they became, at least in their own minds, and, and to others too, I suppose, in, in some degree, they became the hard workers, the, the brains behind the operation. And then you just had these two off-the-wall, goofball-type characters, hedonistic um, drummer and, and guitar player, Peter and Ace, Peter had a massive coke problem and Ace was a huge hound for the booze. <laughs> and so the two of them became sort of the ramshackle duo that were always being dragged along. At least this is how Gene and Paul like to say it. Again, I don't know when this dynamic really emerged. I think they were, there was a very close brotherhood in the very early days. But before too long, especially when success came, uh, it did break down at least to some degree into... The two guys who were all about business and the two guys who were all about fun. All about partying, yeah. And the way Gene and Paul tell it, and they, they're, they're stronger characters. They're, they're better spoken, and, and they, they, get their, they tend to get their point of view across. And even reading Behind the Mask, where there's interviews with lots of people, everyone generally tends to go along with this story and say, yeah, those, those guys were calling the shots. They were turning up and doing the hard work most of the time. And the other two, sometimes they showed up, sometimes they didn't. They were both very insecure and they had drug issues and drink issues and you know albums were made where some of those guys weren't present but they would lie about it and put their faces on the cover and they would get these nameless studio musicians to come in and do things and Kiss had had a 
they were very attached to their brand you know they they wanted to they believe the fans needed all four original members so they wouldn't that's why they would lie about these things yeah and in terms of sort of mastery of the narrative gene and paul were pretty um early adopters of the idea of the idea that you know their the brand was very important and so they if they could control the narrative then they could control the brand and they sort of re- on several occasions they you know starting off long time ago now really they started to throw peter and ace under the bus and say you know these guys are the reason such and such an album wasn't good or these guys are the reason why that tour wasn't good or whatever it may be but we were always hard working and so they started they they were very like ian said they're much better spoken much better um they're more thoughtful and articulating their their view on things and so they were able to master um the creation of the the narrative of history as they say whereas ace and peter were always sort of like underneath the bridge um (laughs) Uh, drunk or coked out of it or whatever and then sort of screaming things back up to the passers-by saying like oh that's not 100% true you know but well we might believe you if you weren't underneath the bridge but you are yeah one of the mad things about reading the books is like the stories where Peter or or Ace you know will have had horrible horrible things done to them by the other two guys and and then they'll just come crawling back and just like you know f- for an ounce of sympathy or or for one of the other guys to say well that was actually really good i like your singing on that track peter you'd be so thankful for it yeah you peter know. peter is a is a wounded child who never really grew up never really learned manners in a man, in many ways and sort of only ever learned to appreciate toughness as a virtue uh, and so when when he's faced with strife he just fronts up and often looks like a fool in the process because it's often the inappropriate uh, reaction and so he's just fighting all the time constantly angry constantly defensive and when when he's given the pat on the head to say good job (laughs) he just melts completely because it's all a show because he's just a little wounded child underneath it all ace then in 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 contrast is just a a strangely passive guy who very hard to sort of get his dander up doesn't really care about too much and he just he takes life very half-heartedly he's like sort of famously lazy had a lot of potential tons of potential was at one point in time was an absolutely stunning guitar player uh can't he can still play but he's just so sloppy because he never practices never really tries he hasn't gotten better in 40 years um and he just very hard to get his gear get his dander up in the in, in the sense that you know peter has grudges that he will hold to forever and is so is burning and bubbling guy, and boiling yeah. whereas ace is just gonna be like yeah that, i guess that was stupid yeah i guess i guess they <laughs> treated me seem... badly but then again maybe i was drunk and yeah. he just laughs he doesn't seem that troubled by any of it like he seems only dimly aware of the problems he might have caused when he a lot of his interviews are like yeah i i was really drunk and i turned up late for all those recording sessions yeah the guys couldn't really handle it <laughs> And 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 as a result of that, when they tell him about when let's say when Gene and Paul, this is talking about mastery of the narrative, when they tell him about you know things that he fucked up in the past, he agrees with them. Yeah, without he even, can't without even it. thinking about it, because he doesn't know. So there was a famous story where instead of going to a, uh, a recording session for the Destroyer album uh, in '76, he was supposed to go in and do lead guitar on the song Sweet Pain, and they said that he didn't show up because he wanted to go play poker instead. So they got Dick Wagner. Um, who was a trusted studio guitarist for the producer of the album, Bob Ezrin, um, to do the solo instead. And Ace was like, hey, I guess I wanted to play poker instead. And it turns out, you know, 35 years later or whatever, they find this solo that Ace actually did record for that song. But oh, they just wow. preferred this other take that a studio guy did. They used it and told Ace 
that the reason they used that was because he never recorded a solo for it. Wow. And he just didn't know. And, and, and he doesn't even care. That kind of lends some credence to, like, all of Peter's grievances that, like, you know, they, they just left him out of things and they claim that he wasn't there or couldn't do it properly. And it's like, they are... They're sneaky enough to do things like that. Then definitely, very they probably did a lot more of it. Definitely very sneaky, but at the same time, I've no doubt that dealing with them was probably difficult at the best of times. Especially Peter. It sounds to me like Ace was just like unreliable. He's just a sloppy character in many, many ways. Probably didn't show up to a lot of things, and there were probably enough recording sessions that he didn't, in fact, show up to. So that you know, again, he can't tell the difference. I think when they were definitely lying and thieving, sort of behind and scheming, I should say, behind Peter's back. But I'm sure he was an absolute nightmare to deal with, too. Yeah. Like, I can't stress enough how much of a wounded little baby man he was (laughs) who thought that, you know, if he shouted loud enough, everyone would sort of, you know, go hide in the corner because he was such a a man-beast. So they they constantly say that he was always threatening to leave the band. Like, as soon as he didn't get what he wanted, and he wanted ridiculous things, like on tour, he wanted all his windows covered up with tinfoil so he could, I don't know. Uh, to avoid, I think, uh, phone rays or something. Oh yeah, so like he would he would <laughs> demand these absurd things, and then if or, or he would want these twenty minute drum solos, and the rest of the band didn't really think he was good enough, and he'd throw he an would... absolute shit fit. And so the famous line was <laughs> Gene said, "When when Peter isn't having a good day, nobody's having a good day." <laughs> In terms of the, the the drum solo, then their second album, uh, Hotter Than Hell, there was a track called Strange Ways, mm-hmm. and. Um, Peter Chris sang the song actually it's written by Ace Frehley but Peter Chris sang it it's kind of a cool low tempo rocker somewhat Sabbathy. Um, he did a long drum solo in the middle of it probably about 10 minutes and the producers turned to Gene and Paul inside in the recording console and said like well, what, are, what are we doing here are you sure are you sure you really want this because they always maintained that Peter was never a good drummer that he wasn't technical that he had a je ne sais quoi some sort of feel that helped the musical um, sort of cohesiveness of the band gel it, it added that special they something. never say that he's good but they but always they, say that he was technically crap uh, but they yeah but they admit that for some reason and it, it gets more and more absurd as the stories go on in the books like the lengths to which they keep him if allegedly he was that bad and they just keep saying yeah he was crap he was terrible he couldn't do it he couldn't do this but you know somehow the band they worked with him they invested in the character yeah but he did he, in the early albums he had this jazzy sort of swingy feel that I think you know really did help the band's uh, sound come together but in that drum solo apparently there was just the technical ability to sustain 10 minutes of your ear time was not there Right? And I think that this would hold true to what everyone has said about Peter Chris's playing since day one. That he did have this certain something, but it didn't correspond to like actual, you know, to do a drum solo, even even any drum solo, you have to be good enough to keep people interested. And he just wasn't. So the producers are saying like, "What are you? Why are you letting him do this?" And they said, "Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We have a plan." So that night, they broke into the studio, and this is in the old days of recording an analog tape. And so they took the tape out of the console and cut the 10 minutes of the drum solo out and then sort of glued the the tape back together and when the album came out Peter Chris quit the band because his drum solo was taken out and that and that was on their second album um so obviously they talked him down off the ledge as they had to do over and over constantly constantly threatening to to quit the band from the two from the other guys was always like Peter thinks he wants to be like John Bonham 
he was no John Bonham. Yeah. They're very blunt about disparaging Peter and Ace, and it's it's quite heartless. I know they probably got fed up with working with them for so many years, but wow, like the their books trash them so much. Yeah, I think I think they're more. Uh, they, there's less. Um, a, they have less of an opening to take pot shots at Ace's playing because Ace has been so influential as a guitar player, and so people just you know they they you have to kind of say look. Ace was really great. Even if he got lazy, even if he got sloppy, even if he stopped caring, he had yeah. that magic. He inspired so many days. other bands that came afterwards. Whereas like, they, they pull no punches with Peter. They just say basically he's absolutely rubbish. And from like from an early point, he started to lose his chops. Um, I think it was multiple things. Peter joined the band um, when he was twenty six, and the rest of them were all in their sort of very very early twenties, like twenty one, maybe twenty two. So Peter was a bit older, he'd been playing for quite some time already, and his arms started to sort of deteriorate in terms of their strength and stuff earlier on, and his playing did start to deteriorate uh, and get worse, but also the coke really didn't help. Um, and from about 75, 76, he was, you know, an aardvark for that stuff, like hoovering it up, <laughs> and he started to get really bad. And there's lots of really funny stories. I think Paul in particular hated the fact that Peter would uh, be very... Um, choppy in terms of tempos slowing down speeding up it drove Paul insane on stage yeah well didn't didn't I think Gene Simmons said that you know oh Ace and Peter think that they're like gangsters because they were both they came well they they saw the, the way that they came from backgrounds that were a bit more rough and, and Peter in particular liked to think he was involved with street gangs and I think Gene was like yeah they think they're gangsters they got involved with real gangsters they get their asses kicked well, I, P, Peter grew up in Brooklyn, and I think I don't know if, uh, how rough really the neighborhood was at that time. I just don't know. But Ace grew up in the Bronx too, and he says that he was sort of part of the same type of gangs that they have in the movie The Warriors from about '77. So you've got the guys who are in the sort of baseball uniforms. You've got another bunch of guys who are actually in sort of pseudo kiss makeup, or maybe '78 is The Warriors actually. But he says that that was the sort of the New York that he grew up in, right in the '60s. And that if he hadn't started to play guitar, he would have certainly gone down that route. But I think Ace was sort of, Ace was maybe a bit rougher on the edges, but he wasn't rough as a personality. No, he wasn't into fighting and... Whereas Peter's whole gimmick in his own head, his own uh, sense of self was based on, like, I'm going to show everyone that I'm more tough than you. And this came out in inappropriate ways and stupid ways all the time. There's a fantastic story that Paul tells in his book where uh, he's sort of Paul and Peter are having a terrible argument a shouting match or something and Paul says to him you're the most unlike <laughs> uncouth uneducated illiterate yeah illiterate stupid street kid I've ever met and Peter says yeah and you're in a band with me <laughs> and I think Paul then says to this day that remains the smartest thing Peter has ever said <laughs> which is like number one yeah okay giving him the kudos but at the same time again hammering it home that this guy is a dunce yeah he's just he's so stupid and finally he admitted it right that's all I wanted oh. was, for it, was, was for him to admit that he's as much of a dumbass as I've always said he was it would be remiss of us not to get into a bit of detail about how kind of awful the other two guys can be as well so Gene and Paul they, they've had a bit more of a pass uh, in the storytelling because they've kind of controlled it because like we said they're just a little they're, they're able to think a bit more clearly they've had more success and more power over the storytelling but they're they're kind of assholes as well they're definitely egotistical yeah Gene in particular is an egomaniac he sort of has some personality traits that are very 
typically uh, associated with an only child. I think he was told from a young age, like you're the you're the one, you're the only one, you're the special one. The king is on his throne. Yes, yeah, is what his mother said when he was on the toilet and his friends came over. <laughs> yeah, so Jean's mother always like worshipped him, um, and she she had gone through immense trials in her own life. She'd survived Auschwitz, ended up in Israel, met Jean's father, but then the father abandoned them, and then they moved to um, New York. Um, I think when Jean was about four or eight or something like that. Anyway, under ten. And they really lived like the old school sort of New York, really tough, challenging post-war immigrant life. And so, like, his, I think for the mother, it was like, I have this son despite everything. And so he has to be, he's my everything, and I'll make sure he knows that. And, and he's never questioned it his whole life. <laughs> yeah. And Jean is sort of, like I say, that fed into this ego that he's had ever since but all his in his book it's actually well, one of the interesting things about it is given i'd always seen him as a very cynical guy about his art and it was just in because like someone said uh, that uh, i can't i think it was in paul's book he says that gene isn't interested in bass playing he just uses the bass <laughs> to sell kiss merchandise get get laid and you know make a bit of money and it's actually interesting to go back and see Gene's taken and have him talk about the things he really does like, whether being influenced by music, but also all his idols from being young are like King Kong and Godzilla and, and Superman. Uh, Lon Chaney. Yeah, Lon, all these larger-than-life creatures and monsters, and that's what he wanted to be. Like, power. He immediately starts off by saying, I realised from a young age that, you know, power was the only thing that mattered. And whether or not that's him retconning his own life... He, that's how he sees it now that's how he's believed it and because he's been successful in his life largely he's never really had to change his philosophy or grow up in any way he's got a very adolescent kind of frozen adolescent uh, set of morals yeah I mean I think some of that is, is definitely retconned to varying degrees but I think it was retconned early in the game yeah. so in the Kiss and Sell book C.K. Lent mentions that Gene this is going back into the mid 70s was very into the idea of what he felt a rock star was supposed to do and say and be like. And so rock stars couldn't read books. If the rock stars were going to read, it had to be a comic book. When in fact, he did. He taught. He was a teacher for he, a while. And he was a teacher. He worked at uh, some sort like of... Um, I th- I'm just trying to think exactly what it was. I think it was like a the Spanish... High, High Commission of Puerto Rico oh, or yeah, something yeah. like this. This is what he was doing around the time that Kiss started up. So he was an educated guy. He was a bright guy. But he couldn't be those things if he was going to be a rock star. Even when he was off stage without the makeup on and nobody, you know, ostensibly knew who he was, he still felt that rock stars had to do certain things and and all that. So he was gaming this, like he had an idea, like, all right, these are the rules of the game. This is how I play to succeed. Sort of, you know, that shrewd mentality from an early period in the the band. I definitely got the feeling that both Paul and Gene want to tell their story as being this classic... American dream rags to riches story you know they started they had it tough as immigrants or as people who didn't have a lot of families that didn't have a lot of money and they worked hard and they you know they didn't drink and take drugs but they put a load of effort into this great idea they had and they worked their asses off for years and that's why it paid off yeah for them it's all about uh, elbow grease sweat equity you know the harder you work the better your results this kind of thing whereas very American achievement based thinking yeah, I think, you know, very much, uh, I think, would it be second generation immigrant? Kind of, you know, like, my parents came here with nothing and, you know, they gave me whatever they could. And now I've, it's my duty to sort of fulfill the promise of what America can offer. Very much like that. And Gene has 
now when he sort of opens his mouth on uh, issues <laughs> political which is always unfortunate he sort of things says things like you know i have no time for your you know indigenous language if you're an immigrant like you need to just speak english and that's it and you can also speak whatever other languages you want and in fact you should but if you're going to work in america you have to speak english and that's it it's over shut up he like, has a very trumpian sort of a might is right or like this worked and was successful therefore it's morally correct and yeah. that's it that's it that's the end of it if something works it's good and right and if it doesn't then it, it hits the wall and that's that's it yeah there's no such thing as art outside of how commerce evaluates it and actually paul stanley is quite different there because he is very very much hung up on his art and how he's perceived and has made many missteps in kiss's career i think out of that fear of, of wanting some part of him wants legitimacy wants to be okayed by the rock and roll establishment yeah, I think Paul, so Gene has always been unabashed in saying like, you know, I don't need a thumbs up from the Rolling Stone types, no. right? So you can, you know, the Rolling Stone types are always going to like boring, dull music and dull personalities. And I'm never going to be into those things. So the Rolling Stone are obviously but I'm not going to like me. So that's fine. But yeah, but like you can, they can give me a one star review, but then come to my concert and you'll see how the, how the people who really listened cared, right? Paul has always been sort of behind Gene with that going yeah 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 totally but then like you can just see in his eyes he's, he's very like, divided would on you this. not give us a three and a half star review Rolling Stone please I just I really want like I'm, I work hard on my songs I really care about yeah. my songs would you yeah. not just ah, come on please there's but some... he's like yeah but uh, I don't need it uh, you know I get my adulation from the fans I don't need it from the from these hoity toity magazine uh, there's, writers in there's San some Francisco. great stories in Paul's book I thought Paul's book was a million times more interesting than Gene's because Gene's, Gene's book is written like he really doesn't care I got the impression some executive came up to him and said hey Gene we're selling all this merchandise how about a book he's like yeah sure if it has my face on it I'll make some money and he just I almost feel like he didn't remember too much he read someone else's book on the kiss history and was just like yeah this is what happened because he adds no insight whereas Paul's book is very much he's like Alan Partridge it's like Alan Partridge's book. He feels like this book is my chance to set the record straight and show everyone what, what I was really about and settle all the scores. In fact, it's a bit like Father Ted's award speech. Oh, yeah. He's like, he's Liar. calling out all the liars that wronged him over the years. And actually, there are chapters that pretty much end with, you know, needless to say, I had the last laugh. Chap- chapter six, twats. Yeah, in a very Alan Partridge slash Father Ted kind of way. There were literally bits where he's like, I saw this girl. I had gone to school with her years ago and I thought she was hot, but she wouldn't go out with me then. So, but now I was a rich rock and roller, so I asked her out and then I didn't turn up. Yeah. <laughs> I had the last laugh. Paul, Paul wants to do a few things. He wants to settle a few old <laughs> scores. He wants to sort of rub a few things in, in people's faces. He also wants to sort of write in what are in his mind a few popular misconceptions, especially in terms of like where credit goes for certain things. So he, he, he very much articulates the idea that like any a lot of the things that you think like you as sort of joe public think that gene simmons was the mastermind behind yeah. oh no 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 that was me because and he, nobody will ever give me credit for it but gene's a, gene is not who you think he is <laughs> yeah. there's he an said, awful lot of that for guys who are sort yeah. of like wedded to each other for life as business partners paul is pretty um happy to really get some <laughs> Deep, dirty, dark, you know, knuckle-twisting body blows into Gene. He says Gene Simmons' best business achievement was, his greatest business achievement, was getting people to believe he was a great businessman. Yeah, it's the old Kaiser Soze line about uh, the devil's greatest trick was to convince you that he didn't didn't exist. Sort of, I think that's where, I think there's a nice parallel between our friend The Donald and Gene, too. Um, I also think something that Paul wants to do in the book 
is sort of root his story in a in a sort of a should we be stopping here because of this nah it's fine something else i think that paul wants to do in his book is to root his narrative his story in um a sort of his uh overcoming a, a birth defect where he had a sort of a, a a malformed ear um and he got bullied about it as a kid he was called stanley the one-eared monster his real name is stanley eisen and so when he was growing up the kids in the block called him stanley the one-eared monster and whether or not this really meant an awful lot to him or not, it's hard to tell in certain ways, but he certainly, again, maybe this is retconning, maybe it isn't, he sort of came to this idea that, like, in order to sell my book, I need a sort of a, a gritty, you know, sort of tough story um, of me getting over something difficult. And so it's all rooted in this sort of, like, let me overcome this and all my rock star achievements are in light of this, you know, like you should make sense of me, you know, selling out the Budokan in Tokyo for four nights and being worshipped as a rock god. And where's Stanley the one-eared monster now? I finally buried him, right? Whereas Gene's book, on the other hand, is just like, it's a very straightforward, triumphalist account of like, this is me being great in 1976, this is me being great in 1985, this is me being great in 1995. And I think that this is because Gene's book was published in 2000, and Paul's book was published in 2014, I think. And just... In the time, in that fourteen-year span, what was expected of a rock bio or even just a, a celebrity memoir, more generally, had really changed. And this, this, each book now just needs some sort of, sort of a gr- gripping, I suppose, or at least from the editor's perspective, gripping, heart-wrenching sort of triumph over adversity, whether it's gambling addiction or a suicide in the family or. You know, something really, really difficult that the person has, you know, it's been tearing away at them their whole life and they finally overcome it or maybe they submit to it or I don't know, whatever it may be. Whereas Gene was just like, and also don't forget his fits Gene's personality too. He's not, not going to let you in. He's not going to show anything of himself. No. But also at that time, just that wasn't how you wrote, um, that wasn't how you wrote the story. Is People didn't want to know about that. We're not, we're not interested in what's behind your eyes. You know, we're just interested in you kicking ass. And Paul's like, I want you to sh- see how much I ass I kicked, but also behind those eyes was pain. So Paul also spends a lot of time trying to portray himself as like a more thoughtful songwriter. Mm. Not that, like, he, he writes, he has written some good songs. Definitely. But I think there's a telling moment in Behind the Mask where they're all like, especially Paul is really wringing his hands about the artistic merit of some album. And the producer comes to him and it, it probably was Bob Ezrin and says, uh, look, guys, stop overthinking this. You guys write dumb, simple, fun rock tunes. You know, don't overthink this. And there's a great story in Paul's book where he like he's feeling depressed about his his writing career, but then he thinks about Beethoven writing his second symphony to overcome a depression, and he gets the inspiration he needs to go and write a song called "Lick It Up." Lick it up with uh, <laughs> just basically. I mean, I'd say eighty percent of the song is just the chord of A chugged. And why he says lick it up, lick yeah. it up. Lick it up, it's only right now, lick it up. It ain't a crime to be good to yourself. So the difference between their musical hand-wringing and the actual content of the songs is also hilarious. You know, they're, they're, every single album that they go through is like another way, a chance for them to either like disastrously try and ape what's contemporary or a way to return to their 70s greatness. And each time it's just like they, they, they approach this by writing songs about their dicks or having sex. Yeah, mo- <laughs> most most of the sort of the thoughtfulness that's done, whether rightly or wrongly, is from Paul. Like, 
Gene has always uh, said, like, you don't play with your head, you play with your dick, which is just <laughs> awful misogynistic nonsense, right? But he's like, you know, you, you shouldn't be thinking about this, you should just be feeling it, right? Which, and there's something to that. Paul wants to do both because he wants to write suck me fuck me songs that are all just like yeah i'm going to show you a good time baby but at the same time he desperately needs that credential as a sort of a solid songwriter who can put together a good lyric and for the sensitive guy he sure wants to know in his book that he's having the sex yeah oh he's still oh man i'm such a swordsman but also (laughs) i'm troubled about my past as stanley the one-eared monster and i'm a tortured artist and i can't get a good review from rolling stone but also you should have seen the babes i was having let me tell you oh they thought i was effeminate they thought i was gay but that was only because i was having sex with all their girlfriends it's funny how in the books like the other the other people on the tours would say things like yeah paul like would come in with like just two songs but they'd be really good in the recording studio and we could use them and also when he's on tour he'd only get off with like the really beautiful girls whereas gene would come in with like 50 songs and he had no idea he couldn't tell which ones were good which ones were bad which ones were usable and he'd also just write any woman he saw on tour and had no quality control over anything yeah i mean this is one of the most disturbing things about gene's personality he collected a scrapbook of polaroid pictures of all the women he slept with and it ended up in the thousands i think maybe four thousand and he was just yeah totally indiscriminate no interest in dis- like you know sort of uh, separating the wheat from the chaff in terms of beauty or personality or any way in which you could evaluate you know a prospective mate for this the, what is it the horizontal tango he just didn't care to him it was like a conquest was a conquest and they were all good on their own terms and so the e- each of the books actually will tell stories about like particularly rancorous beasts that gene bedded I think Peter tells a story about their, I think in LA to record their second album and they were being driven around in a, in a limo and the limo driver was a woman in her 60s and she was calling Jean's son and he was calling her mom and he just kept sleeping with her. Oh, yeah. Just really, really nasty. And she was a woman in her 60s. Jean was like 21 or something, 22 maybe. So I have some notes here that I wanted to mention on kind of the difference between those two guys. Uh, and it, it really is encapsulated in a chapter at the end of one of the chapters in Paul's book where he's, he's talking about the fact that like Gene is kind of checking out because there was a long period in the 80s and the 90s where Gene was not as interested in the band and the other two guys were kind of AWOL and Paul felt like he was doing well, everything. The other, at the, by the 80s, so Ace and Peter were gone and they had brought in sort of hired guns and they weren't they didn't have any percentage stake in the band so they did what they were told and so gene was off doing some movies yeah um, making movies some of which are absolutely abominable and worth watching on those terms um and he was producing albums for the crappy bands and doing some side projects more generally trying to be a mogul yeah Um, and so paul was the one really yeah managing bands yeah managing bands like van halen well no he claims to have discovered Van Halen <laughs> whether or not he did or not we don't know but there, it seems to be the case although no one's heard it that Alex and Eddie Van Halen played on the demo for Christine 16 which ended up on Love Gun uh, in 77 um, but yeah go on sorry uh, I was just going to tell the story about where Paul is like oh Gene you're just not giving it 100% you're, you're checking out and he had he had just explained about how you can't really trust Gene and he'll just say anything to your face and then just go off and do his own, do his own thing and go behind your back. So he calls Gene out on, on his non-involvement in the album and Gene is like, oh yeah, I'm really sorry. And then he gives Paul a sports car and Paul's like, ends the chapter by going, yeah, I got up the next day and there was a sports car for me. I had totally gotten one over on Gene. And that's the end of the chapter. And then the very next chapter starts and he's like, 
Gene hadn't really changed, though. He still didn't care about the album. <laughs> it reminds me of a story I read, and there was a, a sort of a collective bio of all the, the guys in Monty Python. And there was a story where I think Eric Idle had some character that was a success on the show, and he went to Australia and did an ad for a TV ad for some chocolate bar involving the character. And they asked him to go back and do another one. I guess it was successful, and he said, ah, no, you know what, I don't think I actually like, you know, sort of selling my characters to sell chocolate bars or whatever, using my characters to sell chocolate bars. And John Cleese says, can I do it? He says, well, that doesn't make any sense, because you're not, you don't have any role in that sketch. And he says, oh, I'll just pretend to be your brother in the sketch. And he says, oh, that's kind of crass, isn't it? And he says, I'll do anything for money. He says, oh, yeah, if I give you £10, will you go away? And he said, yes. And he took the £10 and was went away. <laughs> so you said something good here, and, and we, we had a comment section on Facebook a, a few weeks ago. You said that Paul is hedging his bets in his book. He wants to impress thinking folk, but also crass materialists, <laughs> revealing himself to be unequivocally the latter. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, so again, talking about the, you know, receiving uh, the sports car and oh, yeah, having I forgot sex the bit with all he, sort of beautiful women. I forgot the bit where he, like, extra gets an extra trump on Gene by being like, I don't want that kind of sports car, I want this kind of sports car. Yeah, so he's trying to show, look, you know, when Gene didn't care about the band at all, I was still the one putting in the hard graft and thinking about songwriting and thinking about the band presentation and strategizing about the musical direction. All the while, Gene didn't care. He just thought if he showed up and stuck out his tongue, everything would be fine. Like, I'm the one, I'm the brains behind the operation. And let me show you that I'm the brains of the operation by telling you that I slept with sexy women and got a, <laughs> got a sports car and, you know, had a warehouse, you know, full of goods and all this. Um... So yeah, Paul, Paul is trying to be a thinking guy, but really he's just as sort of materialistic and yeah. crass as Gene. He just, he has, what, what Paul has that Gene doesn't have is social decency. Um, Gene has no shame and he, like, he just cares about the almighty dollar. He just cares about perception. He just cares about being out there and seen and seen to be a success. Paul wants all of that too. And that's who he really is. But he has some sort of savviness to how perception expands beyond sort of you know your average sort of arena uh arena filling you know sports fan or a music fan or whatever he wants sort of thoughtful people to think of him as a as a musician as an artist you know he paints he puts <laughs> oh, up yeah, he's a painter he yeah <laughs> paints and likes to think of himself as you know like an artist he he puts up instagram videos of him cooking and you know look at my uh, delicate uh, artichoke salad kind of thing you know where gene is just be like no interest in anything like that. No interest. I want to tell a story about how sensitive Paul is. So, in his book, late in the book, he's talking about his new wife and his kid. He's named Evan. And he's talking about their new house that he had built. And he says, I wanted Evan to know that our home was for the two of us. It was our world. One way I tried to declare this was to have a massive floor-to-ceiling fresco of the two of us put into my bedroom. The house was not a home when Pam and I divorced. So I decided to make this fresco the centerpiece both as a way to lay claim to the space and to illustrate the world I wanted to create for Evan. It was based on a 19th century oil painting, a hunting party, Greek gods, new maidens, cherubs, the works. Only I had the artist place me and Evan front and centre, wearing togas with laurel wreaths around our head. Oh my god. In the landscape around us were horses and dogs and dozens of bare-chested nubile maidens. Oh no, I forgot, I forgot all An extreme example of poor bachelor pad taste? No way. No way. No, no way. Not, no. not at all. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
would a poor tasted bachelor have a fresco his kid, with nubile maidens his kid was a, I can't remember his kid was like under 10 years old yeah super young yeah at that time when they got divorced <laughs> nubile bare chested maidens <laughs> so it's just it's like you know when they talk about uh, the nouveau riche right like lots of money and no, no taste. taste that's what he is and but he wants desperately to be considered tasteful and he's not he's awful he's absolutely awful well, I can see you're dying to tell a few Peter Chris stories as well. I am. I have Peter. The way you're holding the book. I have Peter Chris's book open with me here. So, so again, as I mentioned already, a lot of, like Peter's personality sort of boils down to his this chip on his shoulder that he has that people don't take him seriously enough and don't give him the credit that he deserves. That they should be afraid of him for being tough, and then he's got this um, legendary crutch in in the form of his coke addiction. So I wanted to just read. This is from Peter Chris's book from uh, Make Up to Break Up. Oh, each book title, by the way, is a t- stupid pun based on something to do with Kiss. Except, Sim- except Aces. Aces just no His, regrets. I, no regrets. Gene Simmons' book is called Kiss, Kiss and Makeup. Makeup. Paul's book is called... Face the Music. Face the Music. <laughs> with a picture of his face, obviously, on the front. Yep. <clears throat> so this is from when they were recording Rock and Roll Over, which was um, 1976. Um, so it says, on September 25th, we began recording Rock and Roll Over our follow-up to Destroyer at the Nanuet Star Theatre in Rockland County, an old theatre that had been shuttered. I had gone on an all-night coke binge the night before, (laughs) so for the first time in my career, I missed a session, which didn't go down well with everyone else. Eddie Kramer was back producing, and I told him that we should record my drums in the upstairs bathroom to get a better sound. Eddie Kramer had uh, produced their 1975 Breakthrough Live album, which was called Alive. Uh, So back to the quotes. We could put a video feed up there so I could communicate with the control room. Of course, having a camera up there was going to interfere with me doing lines. Lines of coke, that is. So whenever I wanted to do a bump, I moved the camera away and pretended we were having technical difficulties. Then I'd shake it, and miraculously, it would work again. Oh, this shit. And the quote continues. This is my absolute favorite part. So he says, I sang two stories on the album. I sang, sorry, I sang two songs on the album. One night, Paul played Hard Luck Woman for me while we were standing around the pool table on a break. I love that fucking song, I said. I'd do anything to sing that. Well, I was thinking of Rod Stewart, Paul said. Oh, yes. Fuck Rod, I fumed. Don't I have a raspy voice? Come on. (laughs) Paul gave me the song, but while I was recording it, he stood in the studio next to Eddie Kramer from the beginning to the end, constantly talking to me over the intercom. No, more raspy. Speed it up there. I wanted to stab him in the forehead with a knife. (laughs) Toward the end of the song, I broke away from Paul's direction and did some free-flowing soul stuff, and I think that's the best part of the song. I must have done something right. The song was released as our first single off the album, and it went to number 15. Years later, Garth Brooks covered it. Well, he basically, like, bullied Paul into giving him a song that wasn't for him, and and got it by saying, I'm like Rod Stewart, and then bitched when they wanted him to be more like Rod Stewart, singing it. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Oh. He's so obsessed. So constantly throughout... Um, when you get to sort of know the relationship between Peter and Paul, it's constantly, Paul is just like, come on, Peter, you can do better. This isn't good enough. And Peter freaking out that Paul is babying him. He's not taking him seriously. He doesn't trust him. I actually have Paul's take on that same story lined up here. Oh, beautiful. At least on, on the section where Peter is upstairs in the room drumming. And it says, we hoped Eddie would fix our drum sound. After all, he'd been part of getting that big drum sound Zeppelin had. He had Peter set up in the theatre itself while we played in his studio elsewhere in the building. We linked Peter in by video camera. In theory, even a chimpanzee beating on pots and pans could sound thunderous in the right environment. But still, the drums sounded tinny. (laughs) Soon, however, I came to the conclusion that in Zeppelin's case, John Bonham was that sound. And Peter Chris would never be John Bonham. Oh my 
my god. Just, he's so he's so horrible to him all the time. Yeah. Like, don't worry, Peter, you don't need to play. You just need to be a chimpanzee. We could replace you with a chimpanzee easily. <laughs> Music Stand Story is another uh, classic Peter tale. This is from about 79. So at this point, he's really, the fissure has really grown between him and the band. And he had just not played virtually at all on their 1979 album, Dynasty. Um, and they were sort of ready to um, uh, kick him out. Um, but they wanted him back to play on the tour for the next album, Unmasked, which he also didn't play on. And they got a session drummer in his place, and they really didn't want to bring in another um, uh, drummer at all. They had put Peter's face and image on both album covers, both Dynasty Unmasked, despite the fact he hadn't played on them. And so they wanted him to come in and just like, can we not just mend the fence? Can we make this okay again? So Peter had been sort of broken away from the band, technically sort of left, and they are going to try and bring him back to play on the tour for Unmasked. Um, and in the meantime, he had uh, been sort of pretending. I'm not even sure if he actually did, but he says he went off and took jazz drumming lessons so that he could come back and really punk them with his uh, sort of, uh, you know, new, <laughs> new leveled up skills. So he says, I, I'm, quoting, I'm going to sort of quote now in, um, in passim, as they say, um, he says, I knew that Bill, who was their manager, had been pr pressuring them to give me another chance. The Unmasked tour was about to begin, and the last thing they needed was to find another drummer. Uh, they, so he gets talked into it. I said, I had to admit, I kind of liked the idea of going to rehearse with them again. I really wanted to get back at them for all the times that they put me and my music down. I'd learned some new stuff from uh, Chapin, that's the jazz drummer that he had worked with, and I wanted to shove it down their throats. The day of the rehearsal, I arrived at the SIR studio carrying an attaché case and a music stand. I was going to play this out to the max. Instead of the fun-loving, clothes-shedding Catman, they were going to see a new, improved, serious Peter Chris. I set down the attaché case, opened it up, and took out some pieces of sheet music. Then I set up the stand and put the sheets on it. <laughs> Before I left my house, I decided I wouldn't show any emotion, any vulnerability to them again. I wouldn't lose my temper. I wouldn't scream. I wouldn't crack jokes. I had never been so serious my whole life, and it really freaked them out. <laughs> I was extremely locked into myself from the blow. <laughs> they oh, didn't know what to... Code, right? Yeah, blow is coke. They did... So I like how he's never been so serious in his whole life, and it freaked them out, but he was also <laughs> coked out of his tits, so that's great. They didn't know what to make of me. Okay, should we proceed, I said, and I began to sabotage that rehearsal for spite. <laughs> I really think that they were sincere about giving me another chance. If I could, would have played well, I'm sure they would have said, all right, let's go for it again. They didn't really want to lose me and all that money that was lined up for the tour. Maybe they thought by firing me, they were scaring me straight. I don't know. But I did know that I hated them even more after they fired me. The music stand and the sheet music were props to bust their balls. I couldn't read music that well yet. I'd only been studying for three months, but Chapin had taught me how to play some really hard beats that were jazz-oriented, so I broke them out. They tried to join in, but they were lost. Can't you follow me, you assholes, I said. I'm surprised that they played with me as long as they did. I was expecting them to say, Hey, you fucking bastard, you want to be crazy? We're leaving. But they stayed there for an hour or so until they were finally fed up and left. At the time, it felt like I was throwing my life out the window. But who's kidding who? It had been really over for quite a long time already. Uh, the, other, the other two guys are like as, as confused in their version of that story as you could imagine. It's a stunning story because he's basically saying, I wanted to go and show them my chops and show them that they shouldn't have been doubting me, but also I didn't really have any chops. Also, I wasn't that serious because I was coked up. 
Oh, and you know what? They were taking me very seriously and they wanted to give me the best possible chance, but all I wanted to do was shoot myself in the foot <laughs> to get some sort of non-existent or not even potentially existent uh, gratification for punking them, even though they, oh. he punked himself and he even admits it. And he was on blow the whole time. And the end of the story is like, they went off and made money on their tour and I had nothing. Yeah, and he, his, Peter's solo career was a miserable failure too. Jacked oh, no. with another Paul story that I found here mm-hmm. and it... It kind of fits in with what I was saying about his attitude towards music, where he's like, you know, he he, he talks endlessly about, you know, the, the craft of making music, but then when you actually look at his lyrics, they're always really stupid. So he says, come on and love me, came to me quickly in my apartment, very organically, just stream of consciousness. That's the song, incidentally, he put up the Facebook post. That's it. That's the song that he's most proud of lyrically. Yes, and here the lyrics are, she's a dancer, a romancer, she's I'm a, a Capricorn, Capricorn and, and she's, she's a cancer. cancer. She saw my picture in a music magazine. When she met me, she said she'd get me, touched her hips and told me she'd let me. Yeah, there's there's also a line that goes, uh, you were distant, now you're nearer. I can see your face inside the mirror. So like, you know, I mean, not terrible, but you know, not... Rhyming nearer with mirror. Well, yeah, that's not, not great. Then he says, to be able to write something like that without laboring over it is a place you just can't get back to. It's writing without rules. Without any thoughts of justifying or answering to anybody. I think that over time you can become a more technically proficient songwriter, but that doesn't mean you write better songs. This was our third album, yes, but all three within barely a year, so we still had the freedom of not really knowing the rules or not analysing the lyrics under a microscope. The lyrics in Come On and Love Me created such a fluid rhythmic effect. Later in life, I couldn't write lyrics like that even if you put a gun to my head. (laughs) Yet he did write, let's put the X in sex, without a gun to his head. That's true, and that has far worse lyrics. Yeah, it does. Those lyrics are abominable. Truly woeful. Alright, let's find out a bit more about the relationship between Paul and Gene. Yes, this is Peter's take on uh, sort of what makes Gene and Paul different and how they operate together and all this. This is from later in his book. So he says... Both Gene and Paul were masters at beating you down and pushing your buttons so that you'd ultimately feel like a loser. I don't think Peter needed any help in that regard. That was a sort of natural disposition. Anyway, so he says, Between the two of them, Gene was much more in your face, but Paul was passive-aggressive. When Paul didn't get his way, he'd start getting flustered and pacing the room in circles, and you could just feel the bad vibes. Gene would then do whatever it took to placate Paul. Gene might have been a control freak, but Paul usually got whatever he wanted. We couldn't stay at certain hotels because Paul thought they made the pancakes the wrong way. Oh, jeez. I get revised plans under my door all the time because Paul wanted to leave a city and fly to the next town for one petty reason or another. One night we actually left the hotel because it reminded Paul of a funeral parlour. And I was the crazy one? (laughs) (laughs) Paul is much more Machiavellian than Gene. Gene was crass and brutal, but he had a real naivete about him. But Paul could cut your throat and he'd be out of the room before you even realised you were bleeding. He probably picked up a lot of techniques going to see his shrink all those years. Oh, yeah. Gene and Paul really have nothing in common. Gene embarrasses Paul in public with his crude behaviour. Paul likes to think that he's cultured. He dabbles in painting. The only thing they can agree on is the importance of making money. They (laughs) overlook each other's faults and connive together to optimise their earning power. Now, I do think, uh, incidentally, I I think that there's some good insight there. And it is true that Paul and Gene have a mercenary alliance to push the brand and make money but I'll just point out like Peter is definitely in certain other points in the book like verging on the territory of anti-semitism both Gene and Paul are Jewish um, Peter is Catholic and Ace was raised a Lutheran I think 
and it, they sometimes go into sort of both Ace and Peter in various ways go into like the Jews against the Gentiles the Jews love making money and they protect well, their interests and all that didn't Ace get drunk and dress up as a Nazi yeah and mul- then, multiple times and yeah. then like knock on their hotel room doors and stuff yeah, it's awful. Like, <laughs> totally, totally despicable. And, like, again, Jean's mother was in Auschwitz. Yeah. Paul mentions growing up on a street where people had numbers tattooed in their arms. Just absolutely horrendous stuff. Like, so tasteless, so crass. But Peter, in his book, multiple times sort of says, like, the, Jew- the Jews would do anything to keep us out of the money. And yeah. it's, it's bad. Well, here's Paul's take on the difference between him and Jean. He'd say, I just wanted to be sure there was substance. In this regard, Jean and I had some differences. If someone came to us and said, let's make a kiss cake, Jean would say, let's make it ten miles high with lights all over it. <laughs> I would say, that's great, but what will the cake be like? How will it taste? The other stuff is cool, but we need to have a great cake underneath. Without that, we have nothing. Sizzle was great, but you needed the steak. <laughs> and that remained a concern as the merchandising took off. Sometimes I wondered if too f- how far would be too far. Were there things we shouldn't do? At, uh, for that point, the answer was no. It all seemed good. Kiss radios, kiss motorcycles, kiss lunchboxes. So he wasn't as on board with the, you know, the idea of kiss as a brand rather than a band, as Gene sometimes called it. Yeah. At I, that, or at least he, he's concerned enough about how he's seen, how he's perceived, to want to make us think so. Yeah, and I think I think that there was sort of a, a pretty clear pushback, against that. Um, at the like sort of their highest moment let's say 77 78 culturally was when they had the most knickknacks on the go the market was flooded with kiss stuff and they just saturated it with low quality badly thought out crappy you know, stuff and can you think of any merchandise they made that was more out there than the kiss coffin and the kiss condoms uh, the Kiss Casket. Casket. Let's get, get the branding right. Which had some famous occupants. Well, one only that I know Famous, Dimebag Daryl of Pantera. Yeah, he had a Ace Frehley face tattooed on his body too. Um, I think Gene donated the Kiss casket for free because you know he's never going to miss that branding opportunity. I think yeah, I mean a casket is 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 ludicrously <laughs> awful. I mean the rest. Of, I think one one of the things that drives sort of long term fans who take the band like somewhat seriously crazy is that they did a co promotion or co branding whatever with Hello Kitty. And so oh, they have what? Hello Kitty, Kiss, everything. Um, and Gene is... So Gene is sort of has this, again, egomaniac, narcissistic tendency to want to collect all things about himself. And so he has one copy of every single Kiss merchandise item that's ever been released. Wow. And he has to have a separate room in his house, right? So he's got one room that's full of all the Kiss merchandise, and he has a separate room that's full of Kiss, Hello Kitty merchandise, including... Hello oh. Kiss, sorry, Hello hello Kissy, Hello Kitty Kiss toilet paper. Why does he separate the Hello Kitty? Because there's so it's just much, so of, much it. of it. Yeah, so much of it. So Hello oh. Kitty is huge. I don't, I think it's hard, not so easy to get, let's say, in North America or whatever, but it's, there's, it's everywhere in Japan. So. Well, here's another Paul story showing how sensitive he is. Uh, this is, he's describing early on enough in their career. It wasn't unusual to spend 10 or more hours a day in the station wagon together. Ace kept us laughing. One time Peter, who was older than all of us and had a long, mopey face, <laughs> said... How do you like that one, Peter? I have the baby face in the band. <laughs> Ace said, yeah, maybe a baby walrus. Another time in the car, Ace said, I could really use a drink. This was not unusual for Ace. Like, no shit, he was an alcoholic. You can drink my cologne, I said. Really? Sure, cologne is alcohol. 
So he screwed off the spray cap, took a swig of my Aramis, he spit it right out. We all laughed, including Ace. Like, nice making fun of alcoholics there and yeah, yeah. people's faces. We would be remiss as well if we didn't mention Peter's uh, obsession with his cock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely uh, just an insane amount of mentions of, of his penis in, in throughout his book <laughs> and how it's so huge. Um, nine inches or ten inches, I can't remember, whatever. And this, everyone was in awe of it he would regularly whip out his cock and show it to everyone and people would just be like wow what do you do with, with that and he's like oh you want to know and he talks <laughs> they, he talks about how he, apparently they as in the others in the band nicknamed it the spoiler because if he had sex with a woman they'd be spoiled for all the other men because without that cock they, she couldn't experience pleasure again <laughs> I've no doubt in my mind personally that Peter Chris invented that name for himself and there's loads of stories uh, about him taking out his cock and showing everyone and them just being bowled over and with the with how impressed impressive it is but there's also a lot of stories about ace taking out his cock and just like putting it on people's shoulders and there's a moment where peter tells a story where he's doing his makeup and ace just strolls over to him and puts his cock on his shoulder <laughs> or sorry it's the other way around ace is doing his makeup and peter puts his cock on his shoulder and then Ace just gives it a kiss paul and paul and gene are fairly together in their account of most things even when it comes to like bitching about each other they don't their stories aren't radically different but one thing they they have differences about is the Alive album which is one of their first breakthrough albums and it was one of the first well they claim it was one of the first great live albums that yeah it sort of started a big wave of really successful often double live albums in the 70s so definitely a tradition was started with it yeah so kiss alive was probably among the first frampton comes alive from peter frampton was a big one then you had cheap trick at budokan was a big one too so it sort of became a de rigueur thing for the like the hard rock bands of that yeah. era like to do a, a live double lp and they'd had a, a few studio albums before that that didn't really take off and they were kind of thinking well you know our shtick is really all about the live act so let's try and capture that so you know the album meant a lot to them and then it really took off so how it's remembered is quite important to them and yeah the two... they, they, they sort of say that basically the record company was not going to be able to bankroll them anymore because their stage show cost a lot of money and they just weren't selling enough albums. They were sort of selling like a decent amount, but really not enough to warrant the kind of investment that was going to be made that was being made in them. So they had to do the live album was the supposed make or break moment. And then when it did break, or sorry, it did make, I should say, I was going to say breakthrough, but when they, when they when it was a success, it like their immediately their careers were changed. It was a big deal. So Gene says. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the, over the years that stuff has been added to it. I don't remember any of that. I think it's nearly all live and we just cleaned up some of the vocals and stuff and, you know, what you hear is what you get. And then, like, Paul Stanley is like, no, we, we actually went in and replaced a bunch of guitars and a, well, he'd say like 50 or 60% of it is not live. And then actually one of the engineers in the, the, the Behind the Mask book he goes even further and says, I don't think those guys remember quite how much we replaced either of them. <laughs> and he says that it's been 30 years and they've just, they've been telling themselves the story that Alive truly represents them live for so long that they've forgotten that almost all of it has been changed. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's fun to, to look at the different accounts because Peter says that basically everything except his drums and Paul's in-between song raps, like where he would introduce the songs, were all um, redone. So he sort of says, like, everything was crap except my drums. Ace <laughs> says that everything was crap except his guitars. 
I think Paul says like, oh, Peter's singing was terrible, but mine, did, yeah. mine was fine. So they're all, you know, they're saying like, oh, of course we sweetened it up in the studio afterwards because you can't, you know, put on a dynamic, exciting live show like we do without making some mistakes. I mean, come on. And But then they're like, but it wasn't me. Paul My go- playing was perfect. Paul goes on extensively about saying how they added like cannon sounds to things. And he's like, okay, well, we didn't really have cannons there, but it felt like that. Like when you're at the show, it's as though we had cannons. But so we needed to replicate that vibe in your living room. So yeah. he, he's much more... In, Gene is just kind of flat and blunt about things and Paul always has to flower it up somehow. Yeah, he's always trying to, again, give like a thoughtful explanation. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, you would have done it the same way too, you know, if you really thought about it. Gene's just like, I'm a big rock star, I fuck lots of women, that's all that matters. <laughs> like, you don't need to see behind the curtain. There is no behind the curtain. Everything you see is what you get. I have, like, you're, you're trying to find out my depth. I have no depth. Oh, one of the interesting things in the Gene book is his uh, hatred for psychiatry. <laughs> And his lack of understanding that people maybe want to talk about their feelings and has no understanding of, like, why Paul goes to a psychiatrist. and Yeah, Gene was on a TV show in England. Uh, I couldn't tell you the name of it, but it was with uh, Pamela Stevenson, who's, I think, Bill, I think that's her name anyway, Billy Connolly's wife, and she's a psychiatrist. And she sort of did a celebrity uh, psychiatry show where she took a bunch of celebrities in and sort of, you know, asked them about themselves and where they come from. And Gene comes in to do it and he's wearing his sunglasses and he's in rock star garb and she sort of says you know as I think any psychiatrist would like oh I noticed you're wearing sunglasses indoors to a you know meeting with a psychiatrist what is it and he's like my sunglasses give me power because you can't see who I am you, you know I don't want you to see me and Like, and she's kind of thinking like alright but uh, the whole point of this is for me to see something of you and hopefully we can get some insight into who you really are and he's like I'm nothing I'm just a, I'm just a rock star and you're not going to see me and it kind of becomes a weird game of who's going to blink where she is she going to just decide that this is a waste of her time or is she going to be like a diligent psychiatrist from from a to z and he's just going the whole time with his gene simmons routine he's sort of he's really aggressively flirting with her telling her that he, she's really beautiful and she's sort of saying like why do you feel the need to try and butter me up in this way and he's sort of saying like well women who make themselves look beautiful need to be told as such it would be apish of me not to do that because you know i'm a partying rock star type guy and it's just it's a weird thing gene is like it's to see him he's like absolutely he's challenging the ability of psychoanalysis or psychiatry to even perpetrate uh sorry permeate an individual and he's just like i am resistant to this in every possible way like you will never show me that there's a reflection in the mirror there is nothing there's nothing to me except all the nonsense that i've been telling myself for 50 years and what's weird about him is i think he's able to maintain his point of view because uh, from his way of thinking about it he's never had any really big obvious public failures you know like he's got what he wants he is rich he was su- he is successful he has his career uh, he's gotten everything he wants ever so he has never had to say I'm sorry or I'm wrong or whatever so well, he doesn't really understand that other people maybe have problems and that they need to deal with them and that you know but he obviously does have problems, but he can't. He, no, he doesn't see them, or he can't talk about them. He's not interested in acknowledging them because, you know, I, I can't. Because he hasn't had to really. They sort of say like money makes you happy up on like, money makes you happier up until a certain point, and I think it's around like seventy grand or whatever. The more money you earn, After you're not that, actually any happier, really... right? Gene is the kind of person for whom that will never be true. It's like no, the more money you have, the happier you are. That's it. Like, that's how it works. You never max out in happiness so long as you keep making money. And so for him, 
failures that he's had in his life or problems that he's had in his life can't be acknowledged because based on his value system they're not problems yeah they can't be so problems like, he might have had albums that didn't work or that like that failed and he's just like okay what's the next financially or, or or artistically and I, I guess I want to talk about the elder a little bit yeah so the elder is one of my favorite Kiss albums, and is widely considered. We talked about it at the beginning. It's a, considered a misstep. It's kind of like an attempt on on Paul and Jean's behalf to to do something. This is laughable, but more critically uh, aware, I suppose. And it's it's like this kind of Dungeons and Dragonsy kind of fantasy world album with songs that are telling this really, really basic kind of Joseph W. Campbell kind of hero myth about a boy who's going on a journey and overcomes all these challenges. And it opens up with these pretentious, like, medieval instruments playing, like, Robin Hood music. And it's... I, I, I quite like some of the songs on it, but because it didn't make money, they completely disowned it afterwards. Now, do you think that it's more of a Gene thing or a Paul thing, that that album actually happened? I, I think it's 50-50 actually I think Gene, that was when Gene sort of I think it was after the elder really failed that that's when Gene decided that there was no there was no such thing as arti- artistic merit because I think he was burned so badly at the idea of trying to do something outside of his comfort zone and to express himself more uh, in a rounded creative way I think Paul was well into it too Paul loved the idea of stretching yeah. stretching out spreading his wings you know there's a whole song that he sings in falsetto he was sort of excited at all those kind of things and I think it was really the two of them together at that time Peter was gone they had Eric Carr who was the first replacement to him in and he was a hired goon um, and Ace was totally disinterested hated the idea of doing a concept album he wanted to do a return to rock and roll over he just wanted to do straight up hard rock and thought that these guys were absolutely cracked to be doing this pseudo medieval nonsense and so they were recorded the the gene and paul were in toronto with bob ezrin again who had done destroyer with them who up until this point was supposed to be their best album so they're like oh yeah we're going to get our producer from the best album back for our sort of new magnum opus and ace was like yeah yeah you guys go up to toronto that's fine and he stayed in connecticut where he had a studio in his house and they sort of mailed him songs and he mailed solos back to them if you think, you can yeah, imagine how phoning it in literally, like yeah, and he, I think he actually did do some solos over, over the, phone. the phone, yeah. But there are a couple of solos on that album that are actually done by Paul, and they're pretty tasty. There's a few of them that are done by Paul. But Ace, at that point, his chops were were pretty well developed, and I think if they had bothered to do the right project, he could have still been a contributor. But he did not care at that time. He was really getting sauced up in a big way, driving around in a DeLorean. Uh, Crashing cars non-stop. Yeah, crashing cars Dri- Getting drunk and driving around in circles until he crashed. Yeah, but I think Bob Ezrin, the producer, had just come off producing The Wall for Pink Floyd, which is obviously one of the most ambitious, well-put-together, etc., concept albums that's ever been released, and it was a huge smash, smash. And in many ways, the story of The Wall and the way in which it's told and executed is, like, on paper, st- more, like more stupid than what Kiss were trying to do with The Elder. And yet, they pulled it off. Now, that's because Roger Waters is, and Dave Gilmore are really thoughtful, <laughs> educated people, right? And, and fantastic musicians, way beyond the league of anything Kiss could, could muster. But Bob Ezrin was just, I think he was like, all right, Kiss, I'll do your, your album. But like, I want something bombastic. I want something big. But apparently, at that point, Bob Ezrin had submitted to like the really sort of nether regions of a coke addiction that had been oh. festering for a long time and at that point i think his ears were not able to evaluate 
and his mind was not able to evaluate like they once would have. I think the best thing that was ever written about that album is Gene's very short, succinct quote uh, and his, his short review in Behind the Mask where he says, because in, in that book, each artist gives each album a score and he says, as a bad Genesis record, I'd give it a three. As a Kiss record, I'd give it a zero. Because it, it's good, but it's not Kiss. Yeah, so I wanted to read a quote here from the Kiss and Cell book from C.K. Lent. So it says, Bob, that's Bob Ezrin, the producer, wanted a concept album like the Beats or the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, with all the band songs connected by a common theme. His idea was an album with an underlying story to the music. With Kiss, it would be more of an opera, music in libretto, or as Kiss described it, a movie without pictures, where the album would be the soundtrack. Bob's and Kiss's creative machinations were all hush-hush, and no one apart from Bill, that's Bill LeCoyne, the manager, had much of an idea as to what was being dreamed up. Slowly, the story and the album's theme began to dribble out. It was to be a tale of a young boy who confronts good and evil, wanders through the darkness and forests, and in the end finds his way through perseverance and self-reliance. If you actually listen to the album, almost none of that comes through. It's so muddled. There was a lot of mumbo-jumbo in the Khalil Gibran leitmotif about goodness and knowledge, sacred duty, and conquering evil floating around in the original script. There were characters called Morpheus, the boy, and a kind of secret society called the Order of the Rose. The deep secrecy was designed to imbue the album with a mystical quality. No one in Kiss gave any interviews or even mentioned the project to the press during production. And the story, uh, the, the sort of account of this goes on to how the, um, they went to the, the, sort of he details a little bit of the recordings, how they were trying to make it like the Who's Tommy, and then gets to finally the point where they're about to, they have a listening party for Polygram, the record label, and everyone's jaws hit the floor. They're just like, what have you done? And Paul and Gene were like, oh, you'll see. Wait until we get on our tour and we have our sort of elves and, you know, <laughs> I wonder if they were elaborate going to have castle sets. A Stonehenge with a dwarf. Uh, so when they released the album, they changed it from The Elder to Music from The Elder. And the idea was that they were going to tie into a movie that was going to be made. So they felt like this album was going to be a massive hit and it was only going to be a matter of time before they make this movie. So C.K. Lent then says, um, To Kiss, it was the soundtrack to a yet-to-be-produced movies, yet to be produced movie. The fans' reaction would soon be, music from what? <laughs> Polygram was distraught when they saw the cover, which is the, the aforementioned effeminate hand, hand which on, is a, Paul Stanley's. Uh, yeah, on a wooden door, <laughs> Paul Stanley's hand. It looked like a big blob of brown with somebody's hands on top. At first, Kiss didn't want the logo or, or the uh, title on the album cover either. After a heated debate, Kiss conceded to putting a small logo in the upper left-hand corner of the front cover. The title would uh, appear in the upper right-hand corner. Kiss had become true believers, seeing the album as the salvation of their career. Not only would it be a serious album to garner the respect they felt they deserved from their critics, but with Bob Ezrin at the helm, it would be a mega-hit worldwide. Music from the Elder wouldn't just be their comeback to chart success, it would put them over the top. Soon, Kiss would be in the league of international supergroups like Pink Floyd, The Who and Led Zeppelin, all of whom had success with high-profile concept albums. Expanding Kiss's audience was the crux of the strategy. Wow. So you can see that they had big dreams, and there was they were all That's on, they were, really for a large degree, they were all on board, but it did not connect with audiences. It, it sank very quickly, and their, the tour in support was cancelled. Wow. And they had to go and make a really heavy album straight away. That's interesting. To say, sorry guys, sorry, we're heavy didn't metal. Didn't mean that, but they all, it's interesting to hear what they had hoped it was going to be, because they all 
brush over this majorly in their books. Yeah, they shit on it. They pretend they as though it wasn't a big deal. and It was a moment of delusion. Yeah, yeah. look, you can grant us Misstep. a... Misstep. Yeah. Wow. You can grant us a sort of a, a misguided dream. Yeah, we just made this happen. Okay, could have been something else. But they had big dreams. That's why you, when you get the um, the take on the whole history from a from a businessman's perspective, who has no skin in the game, yeah. in many ways, he's just he's just like, all right, cash in, cash out. What what can I do to maximize your revenue? He's in many ways more scathing in certain way, but also more insightful because he sees the he sees the folly, so, but he also sees the personalities behind it and what they're hoping for. And he's not really that interested in the artistic stuff, right? He's just yeah. a money manager. So instead, they spent the rest of the eighties kind well, of they tanked. So they tanked with the elder, and the next album, Creatures of the Night, was uh, creatively very successful, but the fans had just no interest right they'd had the elder was really the last draw after a couple of creative mis- missteps before that and they released creatures which was a great album but nobody was interested anymore and they went on a 10th anniversary tour so this is 83 um after their 10 year anniversary and nobody went and paul tells stories in his book about when he would do a regular sort of thing where he would flick a pick into the crowd and he could flick the pick past the crowd there wow. were so few people in, and they were always in, in arenas so it's just misery 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 so as a last ditch effort Paul was absolutely delighted at this but Gene was terrified but they had to decided there was no alternative but to stay relevant in their heads by taking off the makeup and they did that in 83 and, and Paul really is thought to have come into his own I suppose at this period or at least he was very comfortable with the idea of just, just being another 80s hairband like that that was that played closer to his his artistic uh, sensibilities yeah yeah he was Paul was okay being himself on stage and I think he actually matured quite a bit probably as an individual in certain ways um, Gene was terrified and just like it took him years to find comfort in his skin outside of the yeah. demon costume it really shows in the videos from that era yeah, well, he just some of the looks are so misguided, and even some of the looks <laughs> that Paul is opting for are stupid. But at least he's sort he of he looks comfortable he's in them. He's rocking it, you know, insofar as you possibly could. Whereas Gene is looks stupid. He looks uncomfortable and wrong. Yeah, he just looks. Oh, he God, doesn't know he why he's there. Incidentally, Gene always played bass with a pick, and for some reason in the eighties music videos, he um, mimes playing bass with his fingers. Oh, yeah, and it just looks terrible it's just oh you're not playing like that that's not how you play it's awful he's sort of like pawing at the strings with his right hand with all his fingers flailing like a sort of a squid in the wind it's <laughs> terrible it's absolutely terrible and it's just like you already look like you know a sort of um a 25 cents hooker a transvestite hooker on the street like the yeah. worst of the worst of the worst you don't need to just play the bass like that too they do multiple close-up shots too which just adds to the pain yeah. Paul looks stupid he's got some awful outfits but at <laughs> least he's comfortable within them and it's sort of like you know what you can sort of pass it off as like oh well I guess everyone was wearing it in 1985 everyone looks stupid you know nobody looked good Whereas Gene is like, looks bad by the standards <laughs> of that era, right? Like, which is death by two blows. He looks stupid in the abstract, and he looks stupid based on what other people were wearing at that time. Yeah. And so, you know, they went along with the no-makeup years, sort of just surviving. They'd always get, like, the occasional hit that would keep them alive, and they typically would sell a million albums a year with each new release, and doing just fine, until the inevitable reunion in 96, 
when they basically were they were really close to death's door in terms of their ability to continue touring and they were told by Doc McGee who was notably um, Motley Crue's manager but he had the Scorpions and a bunch of other people as well they're told by Doc McGee like I can take you where you've always wanted to go but in order to do it I need the original four in makeup so he, he was very explicit about that absolutely and they wanted him as manager for years um, oh. and he said like I'm not interested in four faceless nobodies I'm interested mm. in Kiss and he said I know what Kiss looks like <laughs> Joe Public like... knows what Kiss looks like and you know what it's been 20 years since uh... um, you know 7 year olds were enchanted by Kiss they're 27 now you know, it's yeah. been 20 years since 13-year-olds were enchanted by Kiss. Those are 33 now. So they, they've got disposable income. And he said, like, we're going to set the tone for this by booking Tiger Stadium in Detroit, which is a football stadium. It's absolutely huge capacity, probably between forty and 60,000. He says, we're going to book that as our first first concert. And the guys were like, oh, we're not so sure. We're not so sure. But it sold out instantly. Within yeah. I think a couple of hours, and all so of a sudden they this, were back on the high life. This is the nostalgia era, basically, from here on out. From this point, they just they they did their best to freeze time to 1977. Yeah. yeah. And nothing that happened afterwards. <laughs> very like only very rarely would a crack of light from <laughs> anything after 77 be let in. When wow. they went when they went for the reunion album in 98, after two years of very very successful touring. Uh, for the reunion tour. They basically decided that Peter and Ace were too crap and too untrustworthy to play <laughs> on Psycho Circus, which is the album that you said you liked. I do. They, uh, they, 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 they didn't trust them to play on it, so Peter memorably says in his book he was paid 40 grand to not play. <laughs> and they brought in session musicians, essentially. Well, they actually brought in a guy called Tommy Thayer, who now plays in Kiss as lead guitar player, as, um, as a... Uh, he, he, he was working at the time as, as sort of as Gene's gopher i think the term they would they would sometimes use he was doing some video editing for the band but he was also doing things like cleaning jeans gutters and getting oh, them coffee wow. oh i i always thought he was a guitar tech or something uh, he was sort of a freelance like he was a bit of an everything so when peter and ace came in for the uh, reunion their chops had gone to shit and tommy thayer went to the rehearsal studio with them he taught ace all of his solos again yeah because tommy had worked in a kiss solo our cover band and he Ace went, couldn't remember anything Ace couldn't remember any of his solos so Tommy taught them back to him which is absolutely surreal and he also had to go and play with Peter to jam on the songs and say no that's not how you used to play it no, no. Peter in his book sort of says like I had been evolving the songs for 20 years I had been expanding <laughs> my chops and I think in reality he just couldn't play them anymore Yeah. and so anyway this guy ended up becoming um, the sort of the the he was. They never tried to create new characters again for the new people, did they? Like, because they used to with the the, the fox Eric. Car- Eric Carr was the fox, so he was came in. They brought in Vinnie Vincent, and he was called the Ankh. Oh, he needed the, so Ankh, the sort Egyptian, of an Egyptian Ankh symbol. Warrior with the, but at this point, they just anyone new who came in just got the old makeup. Yeah. So now the they've they've since two thousand and three they've had the same lineup actually, and it's hmm. Eric Singer who played in the band in the non makeup years between ninety one and ninety six or ninety five. Um, so he does the Peter Chris Catman costume and Tommy Thayer who's been there since 2003 does the Ace Frehley Spaceman routine and it's just it's it irks a lot of people because he actually did play Ace Frehley in a tribute band yeah. or cover band in the I think late 80s early 90s a tribute band called Cold Gin but he's also played his own lead solos on two Kiss albums since then 
I mean, all of the style, the style of solos he does is absolutely like stitching together ace licks and riffs. And again, that irks some people, but uh, I got more important things to care about. Like the Ghostbusters remake. What the hell was that? <laughs> I noticed how little we talked about Ace the whole thing. Is that because his book isn't very interesting or he's, he's probably the least fiery character out of them all? Yeah, he's not. He's just a dispassionate character in many ways. I think he's a... He's, he, some, some there's a lot of funny stories. So like there was a they went on a um, a talk show in 1979 called the Tom Snyder Show. Oh and yeah. Ace showed up absolutely loaded, and he brought a bottle of champagne. And while they were in the green room waiting to go on, he just like chugged it back and got absolutely balubas drunk. And so they came out to do the do the interview, and it was all four of them at once talking to the host Tom Snyder. And I think Gene and Paul wanted to be the ones, as I said before, like to control the narrative, to just hit upon their talking points, discuss upcoming product. Oh, and, and the host was told beforehand, you won't get anything out of Ace. He never talks to, to people. Yeah, because he's, he's a, very he's, shy. He's a space. He? Well, he's a spacey guy. Like he was literally a spaceman. Like, it's like what, don't don't be surprised if you're asking Ace a question and he's just looking at the roof. Yeah. You know, and and they were told like he was told basically be careful of Peter. He's sensitive and he can get angry. The other two will give you what you need. They're going to be like the material for the interview. But Ace was loaded and he was on form and he was just like riffing jokes nonstop with the host and the host could like Tom Snyder couldn't get enough of it he wanted more and more and more basic yeah. stuff and Gene and Paul are sitting there sulking <laughs> and there Gene looks miserable and Paul is trying really hard to be cool and loose with this all stuff like hey we're having a good time Gene puts on no pretenses he's just like he's he absolutely livid he's absolutely he's like I have to sit here with this drunk buffoon yeah. representing what I do yeah. and he's not happy at all and it's that is like that's sort of the marquee contribution like outside of the music that Ace yeah, ever made in yeah. many ways the rest of the time honestly he he's notable for dressing up as a Nazi he's notable <laughs> for repeatedly saying the word ack like yeah. so like he would call people curly just this very strange character he'd fall asleep all the time and yet he, he was the least interesting out of them in a, in a way because I mean we because he's got he's, him. Cause, yeah because he's got no axe to grind so like what yeah, we're interested yeah. in here is like what the, are the, the what are the petty aspects. bizarre axes that they feel they have ha- to grind I think we have to mention the the made for TV movie Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park is it seventy eight seventy eight yeah so as an example of Ace not giving a damn yeah he just left the set because he didn't care <laughs> and his uh, his roles role was largely played by a black stuntman in Ace costumes. <laughs> Peter Peter was pissed off as well, and he showed up for all of the on-set shooting, but he left um, when it was time to dub the lines. So he just <laughs> his voice is not. Uh, but then he got angry about his voice not being used. Yep. And in a similar way, Ace was going through this period where he didn't want to talk to anybody. He would just make parrot noises at them and go ack. Yeah. Ack. And, and he was hanging out with the writers and the the filmmakers. And they were trying to get everyone's character down and get a vibe for them. And he, that's all he would say. And then when he turned up and read the script and he was like, you didn't give me any lines. They were like, you don't fucking talk to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were trying to write him like he was Harpo Marx or something. But basically in Ace's book, he doesn't try and say, oh, if you understood it from my no, end. No, he doesn't he try and write the wrongs. He doesn't really care at all. 
Because um, he doesn't remember it's, much. It's, yeah, he doesn't remember much. He says that since he wrote the first book, a lot more has come back to him. And he says he's got another book in the works. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, he's been sober for 10 years now. Oh, right. And he's been that. a lot more productive. He's had three albums in the past 10 years or thereabouts. Are they good? Uh, they're all right. He did two albums of originals. The first one I thought was better um then the second one and then he did one album of covers that had some some all right stuff on it all right but it's just he didn't release an, anything at all basically from 1989 to 2006 so he's wow. just he's profoundly lazy like he just doesn't care so like to get three albums out of him in 10 years and a couple of tours is a really big deal gene simmons talks about his mystification of like ace not being bothered to follow through on things that could have made him money so you know, fam- with the lightning bolt. Yeah, famously, Ace came in with this cool lightning bolt design on his, on his guitar strap, and it fitted in with his character. And Gene Simmons was instantly like, "This is cool. You could sell tons of these, and it could be Kiss merchandise." And Ace was like, "Ah, you know, maybe some sometime." And hey, then, Carly, I don't really care. He has this kind of honky New York. Yeah, voice. Na- nasally Bronx thick New York accent. He's like, yeah. "Oh yeah, the rest is history." And Gene is and completely like, what, the, what the hell is wrong with you? And you know what, like hate to agree with Gene Simmons because he is an asshole but if you go into any music shop they will have multiple lightning bolt straps behind the counter and they will sell and they do sell and I know people who have them and they don't even know that that's an Ace Fairly gimmick originally unlike Gene who like takes credit for things he probably didn't invent like the rock and roll metal sign yeah the the devil horns yeah so there's no chance Gene invented that that's (laughs) absolutely Ronnie James Dio but Gene will claim it till the end of time he also claims this ludicrously that this made him money what I'm about to say and it didn't so he um, established a record label in the 80s that did nothing and went nowhere called Simmons Records and his uh, logo was a bag of like a, a, a bag with the money sign like the dollar sign the S with the two lines through it and said that that was the logo for Simmons and he's like no one ever copyrighted the dollar sign before and I made so much money off it's like no you copyrighted the dollar sign in a, on a bag like a loot bag Kind of yeah thing. so that image and nobody has i don't see that anywhere nobody ever uses it he made no money from that there's no chance he made any money from that and that story is still passed on to people who just you know tangentially know a little bit about case and like oh yeah gene simmons he's really into american did you know he patented the dollar sign yeah, what a clever guy yeah, no, he didn't people still like when it comes to paul stanley saying that gene simmons like invented this vision of himself as a smart businessman yeah people buy that still it's very much again it's very much like Trump right so one of the main revenue streams Trump has is not actually doing any business himself but licensing his name to other businesses and sort of bringing the supposed gene that he has as a credentialed businessman to other people's projects Gene Sims is the same thing it's it's all right maybe he built up the the Kiss brand and Trump built up the Trump brand but once you're just selling that to other people Mm. you're not exactly a genius yeah Um, yeah so I think that's all the stories I had to tell me too, but I mean, obviously there's many more. But, uh, <laughs> Maybe we'll we should have probably leave it at that. Cool. Um, cool. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Uh, we keep. Uh, I don't know. We'll we'll have. We haven't. We have another one coming up. Hopefully during the next week. Yeah, we were going. We're, we. What are we planning? We've next? talked a lot about Kiss, and there's many things that Kiss can tell us about the human condition and what it is to, you know, get ahead this life but it can't necessarily tell us what is best best in in life life. so we're going to have to do another podcast to find out what is best (laughs) in life and i have a feeling that there was a motion picture uh from about 1983 or thereabouts featuring a a known politician actually (laughs) that could help us on this quest 
So we might have to actually, we might also have to ponder that question. Have or to, cont- sorry, contemplate that question on, on a tree, the tree, of, a tree wool. of wool. <laughs> so see you all next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now.